Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios, this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 30th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, New York, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and a Drama Desk member, and also contributed to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So I want to get into a little bit of housekeeping here before we start. Peter is not with us this morning because he's in Aruba. He's at a musical theater conference in Aruba. That's a good gig. Uh, because I woke up this morning, it was 40 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and uh, I got an email from Peter, and he made it there, and everything's good. But I have pre-recorded his trivia questions, so never fear, we'll have trivia at the end. And uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, also, in the Patreon feed, we have... Uh, Jan Simpson's stagecraft. Uh, Joseph Doherty, the playwright of Chester Bailey over at Irish Rep. A uh, little discussion there. And in listening to it, I he learned that he was the um, he wrote the book to my favorite year at Lincoln Center. I didn't realize that. It's a great little conversation with uh, with Jan Simpson and Chester and uh, Joseph Doherty about Chester Bailey at Irish Rep. So get over and take a listen to that. And Chester Bailey has been extended at Irish Rep until November twentieth, twenty twenty two. So check that out. Um, also, uh, part three of a little housekeeping is that uh, I wanted to let everybody know that uh, I've gotten your emails and text messages and voicemails and everything checking in on me and I very much appreciate that life is very good I feel very good these days and uh, so I really want to say thank you to everybody including some readers who have actually sent me a letter or in cards through the mail and care packages wow it's been awesome thank you so much Mm. so uh, first up um, we're going to do something that we hardly ever do. I'm going to start because I got a chance to see Top Dog Underdog, the revival that is playing on Broadway right now. And uh, I have to I have to say that this is just an unbelievably amazing play that just Susan Laurie Parks has written that just does, has not seemed to age a moment. Uh it is so relevant today as it was twenty some odd years ago when it first uh, hit the hit the New York theater scene. Um, we have um, two actors in this two hander uh, taking on uh, these the roles of Lincoln and Booth, who's uh, who was named by their father in a very mean way. This way, <laughs> uh, Yahya Abdul Mateen. Uh, and Corey Hawkins take on these roles, and I have to tell you that uh, both of these both of these men are just absolutely amazing, and that this uh, this play has not uh, it just just hasn't aged a bit. It seems so relevant today, with the one exception of the talk about telephones, because uh, there's a whole monologue in there about. Ha, you know what having a home phone means, which 
I guess in retrospect, maybe having a home phone is a luxury these days because nobody has a home phone, right? And so uh, the, um, the story is really, really intense and wonderful. It's, it's staged by Kenny Leon. Uh, and it's just, uh, I think we're going to see this. It's a limited run, but I still think that we're going to see this in the, uh, in the award season in May and June, uh, because every point of this production from lighting to sound to, uh, costume design to the, to directorial, to these actors, I think everybody's going to be in the awards categories. This is a, what I'm thinking is this is a must-see for anybody, uh, you know, who really, really loves Susan Laurie Parks and great plays that are uh, on Broadway. So get over to the Golden Theater and see Top Dog Underdog. Next up, we have uh, Jenna Tessa Fox got to see Walking with Ghosts. So Jenna, tell us about this. Yeah, Um there is a big difference between acting and storytelling, and fortunately, Gabriel Byrne is very skilled at both. Uh, Walking with Ghosts is an adaptation of Byrne's own memoirs. It feels less like a play and more like an evening of stories shared around a fire in somebody's living room. Uh, Byrne does not share salacious details or spill a lot of tea about his film career. A lot of the stories are about his childhood in Dublin, with Byrne reenacting both sides of a conversation, making each character very vivid. He recreates voices and accents and mannerisms until it's kind of easy to forget that there's only one person up on the stage. And because these stories don't focus on Byrne's Hollywood career, they feel very relatable. They feel very recognizable. Uh, early in the play, he talks about his first visit to a movie theater with his grandmother. And for several moments in the scene, he doesn't say a word. We hear music from the film, and we see Byrne's face mesmerized like a child's. And we see a growing love of an art form. We see how somebody can become so infatuated, and suddenly I'm seven years old again, watching what was Starlight Express. And oh my God, <laughs> this is what theater could be. It's a gorgeous moment, very relatable and recognizable, where the storytelling and the theatricality just combine seamlessly. Uh, and there are other moments that really hit a lot harder. Uh, Byrne talks about the abuse he endured in his Catholic school. Uh, please consider this a real trigger warning. There is talk of really disturbing violence and sexual abuse. There is no happy ending to stories like these, but it, the play does not wallow in these unhappy moments. They are part and parcel of a life, and he shares lots of different types of memories, funny and poignant. It really kind of reminded me of when my grade school teacher would read Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales every year. A lot of the play's moments have that same sense of recreated memory. Uh, another very powerful moment is when Byrne discusses his alcohol addiction, addiction and how he was able to get the help he needed to get sober. Um, the scene is a highlight of Byrne as a storyteller and actor, but it's also a real highlight for Sinead McKenna's lighting design. 
uh, for a lot of the play, Vern is lit by this you know warm amber glow. It's a very flattering light. But when he talks about his alcoholism, he steps downstage out of that warm, flattering, comforting light into this cold, industrial-looking white light that highlights every line on his face, every gray hair on his head. It is not flattering at all. He's not asking us for sympathy in this moment. Uh, he is he feels so vulnerable and so exposed. It is brilliantly staged. Uh, director Lonnie Price really deserves a lot of praise for making that particular story into a really very powerful scene. And uh, Price also does a really nice job of making each of these stories into their own miniature plays. I really do expect to see excerpts from this in evenings of 10 minute or five minute plays very soon. Um, he makes sure that there are moments to breathe between each moment. So the emotion for each story can build and then ease as it's needed. So nothing becomes overwhelming and you know, a sign of really solid direction. Uh, I mentioned Sinead McKenna's lighting design. I should also praise her scenic design. It, the Music Box Theater isn't the biggest Broadway house, but it also isn't the smallest. And her use of golden frames on the stage, often lit one at a time, really helped make the space feel a lot more intimate. Uh, Sinead Diskin's music and sound design also add a lot to this narrative, especially in that movie theater scene where the music becomes another for that wonderful moment. Walking with Ghosts is this lovely collection of stories about growing up and even growing as an adult. But if there's one complaint I have, it's that the play feels a little bit too intimate for a Broadway stage. Mm -hmm. I truly hope this run does well, but I could see it working a lot better in a smaller venue, maybe off-Broadway Irish rep, perhaps, or even in you know, personal living rooms, the way Wallace Shawn did The Fever, or Kathleen Chalfant right now is doing The Year of Magical Thinking. Um, and I, I truly hope people sitting in the rear balcony of the music box got that same sense of intimacy that people down in the orchestra did. Fern uh, is a wonderfully talented performer. Watching him tell his own stories is a real treat. The play is well-written enough that other performers could pick up this mantle and perform it elsewhere. And I really hope they do. All right, that's uh, Walking with Ghosts, uh, playing scheduled right now through December 30th, 2022. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Michael, mm. um, you got down to the Classic Stage Company where you saw A Man of No Importance. So tell us about this. Oh, you know, I really loved it. And this is another one of those cases where I saw the original production and liked it but didn't love it. Uh, but this one... Uh, for whatever reason or reasons, it just seems so much, so much more enjoyable to me. Uh, this is John Doyle's production, a director who, uh, whose work I find to be extremely inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what to expect as far as that. Uh, I would say that his direction, his style of direction works beautifully for this play, uh, in, in that space uh that csc space down on 13th street uh and um partly because maybe uh a man of no importance might possibly tend to come across as a little 
treacly and overly sentimental if it's not well directed. But um, John Doyle, I think, is 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 well known for working against that kind of thing, which is one reason why I would say his production of a, the color purple was also so successful. Um, they uh, to sort of dial down the the sentimentality and the you know if there's melodramatic elements and and any any treacle. Um, uh, I I think that that maybe is part of the reason why I really enjoyed this production so much because all of the sentiment still comes through, but actually benefits from being downplayed. If that makes any sense. Um, I thought that Jim Parsons did an excellent job in the leading role. Uh, He, um, I have enjoyed him very much in the past, but it always seemed to me that perhaps he was going to be limited in the roles he could do by the fact that it seemed that he could not speak in any fashion but his actual voice with that um, southern accent that he has uh and it was appropriate for everything that that he has done in the past including the boys in the band um i thought it worked fine in harvey uh obviously it works fine in (laughs) in the you know the role that that made him a household name on the big bang theory on tv um but here uh, he has to have an irish accent and i i would say he did an a very good not perfect job um it was maybe perhaps not a hundred percent believable throughout the performance, his accent, but there were no moments when I said, Oh my God, you know, uh, that's awful. <laughs> and it really took me out of it. Uh, it. It was, it was almost perfect. I think um, a, a, an almost perfect light Irish accent and certainly enough to, uh, to make the character seem credible and part of the piece. Um, I thought that the rest of the cast was superb, uh, especially AJ Shively as Robbie, um, the young fellow whom Alfie is in love with, uh, uh, you know, but Alfie is closeted and uh, because of where he's living and when he's living. And it's uh, a story that uh, is, is familiar, I guess, in, 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 in that we've seen similar stories before, but I think it's handled so well here. Uh, I, I don't know how many of our listeners have seen the original film with, with Albert Finney, um, mm-hmm. but that was very well done. And then the original production at Lincoln Center of the musical, uh, by the way, book by Terrence McNally and music and lyrics by Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. Again, I, I, I just thought it was fine, but it didn't, leap out at me this this one seems so much richer and uh and i and i can't exactly put my finger on it but i i whereas before i thought it was maybe just a c level or b minus level musical now i would say maybe a minus uh i i think it's something that you really should try to see if you get a chance uh and and the intimacy of that space on 13th street really adds greatly to it it's um a three-quarter thrust uh set up for the playing space which is normally i would say what you get in that in that theater um so yeah a very very enthusiastic response from me and um uh and i think that both uh mr parsons and ada shively may 
may factor into the uh, in some the award season when it rolls around. It, it wouldn't be Tony's because it's not a Broadway show, but Drama Desk and the other awards, I think you're going to hear their names and they both really, really deserve it. All right. Uh, so that is, um, do I have a playing date through December 18th? It was just extended. Right. So, so Classic Stage Company, A Man of No Importance through December 18th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, so, Michael, the constant question with, uh, <laughs> with you know, great classic stage plays, is, uh, is this something that should be transferred? Well, um, again, the intimacy is so vital to the success of this production. So it would have to be to a venue that could, you know, maintain that. Mm. I should say also, you know, the The, fact, sorry, the fact that this is so much, it's about, uh, among other things, it's about the love of theater. Uh, I mean, Alfie, um, I mean, he works on a bus, but he he loves the theater and they have this little community theater group in, in Ireland and they're trying to put on, of all things, Oscar Wilde's Salome, which you know, is going to get them into a lot of trouble. And uh, but he, you know, he's a free thinker and he's uh, and uh, Oscar Wilde even appears uh, as as a character briefly in the in the show. So there's the whole thing about repressed homosexuality and and uh, and homophobia. And it's a very, really very, very rich um, piece that I'm glad that uh, Flaherty and Aaron's and Terrence McNally decided to make it into a musical uh, because I think that it really adds to it so much. All right. Uh, Maybe they could move it to the music box. Just keep the theme going. <laughs> how is how is it staged at Classic Stage? Is it in the three quarter? Oh uh, yeah, I, I mentioned that. Yes, yeah. it, it, it is. Uh, usually, I mean, I guess sometimes they do things in the round there, uh, but usually, uh, it, it seems to me that it's the three quarter thrust setup. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the only three quarter I can think of is circle. Off the top right. of my head, that would and, be perfect. Actually, well, that I would understand be that Circle perfect. is is now booked for the next fifteen years. So, oh, really? Really? <laughs> K-pop. K-pop oh. is K- <laughs> get get your tickets now for K-pop because you're not going to get them. Oh, okay. You are not going to get K-pop tickets uh, once this thing starts playing. Wow, it's crazy, crazy. I understand that they are. Uh, it's going to be a very, very different type of show on Broadway. K-pop is going to be a very, very different type of show on Broadway, uh, bringing out an audience that we have not seen before. So, Ooh. interesting. So, uh, I am late to this party, uh, but the party was 250 years ago, and it was uh, down in Philadelphia. <laughs> um and I got over to the American Airlines Theater to see 1776, and I think everybody's talked about it. Jenna, have you spoken about it on, on Broadway Radio? I'm not sure. I, ha- I haven't. You haven't. So so join me in your comments here about uh, what you thought about 1776. Uh, I saw it the other night, and Sarah Parkalob was out. <gasps> and... I was very disappointed about that because I wanted to see what all the talk was about from sure. both sides of the equation because people who I tremendously respect were like, she is amazing. 
absolutely amazing. And then mm-hmm. people who read the article uh, from uh, um, Vulture. that article in Vulture, uh, where her 75% comment uh, was made, uh, it's uh, uh, it was very, I was so disappointed that she wasn't there. Anyway, I was mixed on the show. Uh, we have, I want to say, uh, I think that I counted 23 women on or people on the stage. Uh, and I think that you have at least 23 possibilities uh for people to carry an entire show on their on their on their own mm. uh just amazing amazingly talented cast i felt that the cast was uh not used fully to um you know to the the greatest opportunity uh for the for the cast to shine i also felt that uh, and Peter talked a little bit about this in his in his review about the the American idolization of the singing, mm-hmm. and that uh, I wanted to say that louder is not better. And at certain points in the show, I was like, "This is just way way too loud," and it's abusive, I think, for the musical director or the stage manager or the director to allow that to happen eight times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, years and years and years back when Rent first opened on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, the revolving door of cast members in Rent was because everybody kept blowing their voice out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we lose a handful of people in 1776 because they're blowing their voice out. And, uh, and so that, that's just crazy to me. And also, it, it's not attractive in the audience to, get our eardrum shattered um and and again this is not this is not an actor's fault this is you know somebody has got to be the third eye and tell them that they need to pull back um as jan simpson talked about the lack of the calendar on stage uh takes away the urgency of a lot of the second act uh and, Peter mentioned that also. Yeah, yes. Peter Peter mentioned that uh, as well, uh, and that the uh, the the all of a sudden, as the the writing comes up on the back on the back curtain, um, that you know it's July second. You're like, whoa, where did that happen from? That's uh, mm-hmm. that happened quickly. You know, we missed a few days in there mm-hmm. while they were going to see George Washington and change people's minds, but you know sort of a calendar there would have created more urgency uh, and heightened heightened the tension and would have been helpful for the show. Uh, and that plays along with the inconsistent storytelling, which I think falls on the directors. So I think probably what, um, you know, I don't know any information here, but... Uh, so much of the word of 1776 coming out of Cambridge was that this was going to be an amazing, amazing uh, Broadway production. And then it got sidetracked by uh, the pandemic. And then it was supposed to come back. And then it was not supposed to come back. And it was going to go to Circle in the Square, where it would have seemingly been a commercial production. 
and then that didn't happen, and then it came back as a roundabout production, best fully squarely in the nonprofit realm. Um, and so, and then we picked up a co-director was the choreographer Jeffrey L. Page, mm-hmm. and now Jeffrey L. Page and Diane Paulus are credited with being the directors on this project. And I think that when you have two directors, you have one too many. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to hear from folks who saw the Cambridge production and saw the New York production, the, the current Roundabout production, and see if they felt that it's the same thing that's happening there. I thought lots of things were really interesting the way that they told the story and some of the things were wildly inconsistent, you know, from little things as large hoop earrings uh, uh, alongside with uh, very period costumes that very, very, very expensive to make. So, uh, kind of reminded me of the movie of Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> sure. But you know, I get the choice. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, and to and that definitely was a choice. I think that I did see somebody wearing a diamond ring on 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 stage as well. So I, I was just, uh, I but I really appreciated what Peter had to say about this possibly being a community theater production that just didn't have any men and they decided to do it anyway without men. And I thought that that was totally valid and totally worked for me. And I put that in my head and I says, Oh, it makes me feel a little bit better about this, about this production that, um, this is a production of, of really, really talented people who want to put on a show. And this is the show they wanted to put on. Mm -hmm. So Jenna, what do you think about uh, Seventeen? Uh, well, I didn't uh, get a chance to uh, uh, get my thoughts in order. Sure. I didn't. Yeah. Um, but off the top of my head, yes, I agree with you. Um, I think it's a very mixed production. There are some fantastic performances on that stage. And there are also some performances that I think uh, fall flat. And they are all so very different. Everyone's take on their character seems so distinct i'm not i'm not phrasing this right but it really feels like a flaw in the direction to have every when it feels like everybody is on a different page it doesn't feel consistent they you have characters being incredibly campy and hammy you have characters being incredibly natural and and it just feels so uneven, even within the same scene. You'll have someone just turning to face the audience and speak out in a very presentational style. But the person they're speaking to is reacting naturally in a very representational style. And it's jarring to see those two styles in one conversation. And it just takes me right out of the moment. Um I, I, I so much of it just did not work for me. And again, I blame the direction when there are so many elephant uh, elephants elements. Oh my God. You just said elephants. <laughs> so many elephants in the room. <laughs> there are so many elephants in the room, but when there are so many elements that just don't fit to me, that's a, a problem with the direction. I love the concept of this production. I love the idea of telling the story of America's founding by the people who were never invited to the table. 
that to me is a wonderful device, and I'm grateful that they took this risk. And I'm really hoping the problems of this production don't dissuade more directors and more producers from taking risks like it. Um, it, and there are some fantastic performances. I mean, Carolee Carmelo as John Dickinson. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, she oh, was great. God, she's phenomenal. But I mean, like, I, I, I love Elizabeth A. Davis. Uh, she is a wonderful performer. I've been a fan of her since I saw her in a little off-Broadway, off-off-off-Broadway play that a friend of mine wrote. This was before she did uh, Once. So she is a wonderful performer, but the way she's directed as uh, thomas jefferson it, it it doesn't work i mean there's there's no there there and i know what she's capable of doing i think we all know what she's capable of doing uh, it feels like she was just left on her own and it's so disheartening because i know how brilliant she is as a performer um and i agree with you about the belting and uh, well i will say the music arrangements the they don't i i certainly have i don't insist on accuracy in terms of you know time and place fitting the music i mean we wouldn't have jesus christ superstar or hamilton if we insisted on that kind of accuracy but the new arrangements and i am looking to see who did uh oh who did the arrangements uh orchestrated by john clancy uh music direction by my ryan cantwell the the new arrangements really uh, sound contemporary. There's electric guitar. At the end of The Egg, there is a long musical break with projections on the rear of the, uh, the rear wall uh, depicting protests from 1776 on to today. But it, it breaks the moment. I mean, there's this electric guitar riff on The Egg with these video projections as we've got Ben Franklin playing air guitar and Jefferson playing the violin. And I've just sat there thinking, what is happening? I'm not getting a powerful moment speaking to progress and the legacy of American rebellion and American protest. I'm just sitting here thinking, well, what happened? Where is this coming from? And it doesn't fit in with the moment as it was written. Again, I am grateful for the risks that were taken with this production, but so many pieces just don't fit together, and I truly wish they did. Um, Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no. Uh, Anything else? Not much. I mean, again, the performances are, a lot of the performances are very strong, and I don't want to poop on anyone's parade, but I, 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 I wish it were, I wish it had been pulled together differently. and. Hopefully the next production will be. Well, just uh, quickly, I, I did see Sarah Porkolob, and I'm ha- happy to repeat that I thought it was a tremendously lazy performance. She literally had a, a, a tremendously, obviously insincere smile glued across her face for the entire show until molasses to rum. And I think that's just a very simplistic, lazy decision. And the character is much more complicated than that. So, and I swear to God, <laughs> I felt this way. And I said it, this to several people, even before that tremendously off-putting interview that she did, uh, even before that appeared. So it really was an honest reaction and not just a, a 
a reaction to the interview. Uh, it was a reaction to the performance. Um, so I, yeah, I'm not sure that she, I'm not sure that she is um, as good as she thinks she is. And, you know, regardless of the 75% comment, whatever that was supposed to mean. Well, there were a lot of other comments in that interview that I thought were really thought-provoking and very interesting. I, I was not as offended by that interview as a lot of other people were. I think she had a lot of very valid comments to make. Um, in terms of her performance in this production, I did get to see her twice, and my I had a similar reaction uh, that what I love about the character of Rutledge mm. is that he's so quiet and calm throughout. I mean, he fits in with that cool, considerate men archetype so perfectly. Yes. And so when Ben Frank, when he says, just a moment, Mr. Adams, and, and Ben Franklin whispers, watch out. Right, exactly. That's yeah. such a great moment because yeah. Franklin's been watching. Franklin knows where the threat is, but the audience doesn't. The audience doesn't get why this character should be a threat. But with Porkalob's interpretation, and again, I think this goes back to the direction. Mm. I mean, she does everything but twirl a mustache from the time she enters. <laughs> she, she conveys the character's villainy from the moment she steps onto the stage. And right. I think that weakens the impact of the character. And I don't blame her for that. I blame the direction. Uh, well, who knows? I mean, it's, uh, neither of us can say who who whose idea it was to play it mm. that way could be a combination of both uh could she be. could have come up with that interpretation and it and it was not challenged by either of the directors or um i suppose that interpretation could have been imposed on her but she doesn't seem, <laughs> sound like the well, kind of person would have that happen <laughs> but <laughs> she, i will say i mean i i was impressed enough by her singing and what she did with molasses to rum i will happily see her in her next production i think she's a very she has a fascinating voice uh, both in terms of what she has to say out of character and in her singing ability, I will happily see whatever she does next. I'm very interested in following her career. I read in an interview with her that uh, she was up at uh, ART, uh, the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, doing a production, uh, a one-woman show called Dragon Lady. Right. Um, and, uh, of course, Diane Paulus uh is the artistic director up at ART, saw her in Dragon Lady and asked her what she wanted to do in 1776. She got to pick mm. that she wanted to be Rutledge and because she, she wanted to sing Molasses to Rum. That was her whole, uh, according to her or according to this interview, that this is what she said, that this was um, the the manifestation of of how they got from her production in Dragon Lady to Broadway right now. And uh, so I thought it was interesting that she's out of the production right now, uh, at least the performance that I saw. And uh, and with, there was so much blowback after the interview. I don't, you know, we, we have to wonder if if this was the reason that she was out of the performance and when she'll return. Do you have any idea if it, if she missed more than that one performance that you saw? I don't know. Okay, but uh, I, huh? I I can check with the press reps and see if they'll give me any statement about that. We talk about it next week. Mm. So, anyway, 
1776 at the American Airlines Theater, scheduled through January 8th. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you saw a production of Carmen by Master Voices over at the Rose Hall. So tell us about this. Yeah, I really was looking forward to this. It was on Tuesday, the 25th, the one-nighter. Um, and I was looking forward to it just for several reasons. First of all, I like the group, uh, which used to be called the Collegiate Chorale, uh, but now it's called Master Voices. And I, you know, I like to follow them as a chorus. Uh, I, I don't think there were as many choral groups <laughs> like that as there used to be um, in the city and in the world. Uh, so I'm really glad that they're still around. And now Ted Sperling is their artistic artistic director he has been for several years and uh, so i wanted to see this performance for that reason but also because uh it was performed uh carmen was performed in an english translation by sheldon harnick that he did several years ago many years ago um for the houston grand opera and i even remember um when it first came out and i remember there was a radio performance of it that I listened to way, way back in the day, uh, but I hadn't heard it since then. So I wanted to hear it again. And I, I think it's not, uh, you know, it's very difficult to translate an opera into English, especially um, the non-comic ones. Uh, and I don't think it's a hundred percent successful, but he is Sheldon Harnick. And, <laughs> and so you don't usually get somebody of that quality to do a, an opera translation. Um, so I think that it's really very worthwhile to hear it. And it makes the piece obviously more accessible to many people than it would if, uh, if it were done in French. And yes, of course, uh, super titles uh, on the, on the, on the walls or on people's seat on the backs of people's seats. Uh, um, they can, they can help greatly, but it's, you know, it's not the same because your attention has to keep going back and forth to the translation and then back, back to the stage. Uh, so hearing it in English is a whole different thing. Um, interesting to compare it, uh, to the translation of Carmen that was done by Oscar Hammerstein for Carmen Jones. Although, of course, there's no direct uh, comparison there because uh, Carmen Jones was, Carmen was adapted into a, a whole separate piece uh, by Hammerstein to Carmen Jones. And the setting was shifted from Seville in the 1800s to uh, a, a parachute factory in the American South during World War II. And all the characters were adapted for that. So it, you can't compare them directly as far as that. But, but just the fact that we have two translations of Carmen, one by Oscar Hammerstein and one by Sheldon Harnick, I think that's really pretty great. And they had a fantastic cast um, in this performance. Ginger Costa Jackson uh, is Carmen. And I had, it's funny, I had never heard of her before because I don't follow opera as closely as I used to. Uh, but like the day before I went to see this, I came across, the, um, there was a recording of The Cradle Will Rock that was done uh, in 2018, I believe. Uh, 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 the first complete recording of The Cradle Will Rock with the original orchestrations. And she is one of the leads in that recording. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, that's the lady I'm about to go see in Carmen. Uh, and she was really great. Uh, her voice is phenomenal, um, but also she's quite beautiful and and sexy, if I can say that, uh, and, and thin. Um, and so... Uh, 
that whole aspect of the character, which is so vital uh, to Carmen, that really, really came through. And fortunately, um, she had someone amazing to play against because the guy who played Don Jose, Terrence Chin Loy, um, has a, a really fantastic, beautiful, beautiful voice. And um, uh, and also he was a great singing actor, uh, maybe not so much in the dialogue scenes uh, as in the when he was actually singing, but still very, very persuasive. And John Brancy was was a fantastic Escamillo and my Michaela Bennett, um, whom you may have heard of. Uh, she's done quite a bit of stuff, opera and musical theater was Michaela. She was great too. Uh, the, uh, yeah, as I, as I mentioned um, some weeks ago in another context, the original version of Carmen uh, has actually quite a lot of spoken dialogue in it. Um, and then after Bizet died, during the run of the original uh, production at the age of 36, which was one of the great losses to, uh, to music in history. Uh, but anyway, after that, after he died, it was adapted into a more grand opera version with sung dialogue by a friend of his uh, so that it could be done in the larger um, theaters and also in theaters where, uh, you know, where grand opera is what they're used to and, and spoken dialogue doesn't really work in those huge places like La Scala and, uh, and the Metropolitan Opera, etc. cetera. Uh, but this was the original opera comique version, it's called, um, with, with spoken dialogue here performed in English. And it makes it, uh, you know, a whole different experience. It really is, it's, it's a lot more like what we think of as a musical, um, you know, musical with really, really beautiful music and and a lot of it is a lot of the music is traditionally operatic but so much of it uh, including some of the more famous pieces are a lot more poppy i guess you would say uh you know with these spanish rhythms and the definite um uptunes with lots of color and lots of life and and uh and syncopated rhythms um so it really was a fantastic fantastic performance uh in the beautiful rose hall in uh which uh, in what used to be called the time warner center until very recently but now i'm told is now called the deutsche bank center did you all know that oh no, no i didn't know that <laughs> what apparently oh. this very very recently happened and i guess maybe that's not the best news because of certain aspects of Deutsche Bank that we won't get into. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, the, the hall is really beautiful and very adaptable. Um, uh, I've been it, I have been in it a few times and it, it can change from a proscenium uh, setup, uh, you know, a traditional proscenium setup to what we had the other night, which was really um, not that at all. There were, there were seats. Uh, it was, it was basically in the round, except that in this case, the chorus um, sat in the seats behind the stage. Uh, some of them sat in the, the seats behind the stage and that some of them were actually on stage performing and moving and dancing. Um, but uh, it, it really is a, a try to get to see something at the Rose Hall if you can, because it's a, a jewel of a, of a concert hall. Uh, and the orchestra was the orchestra of St. Luke's and it played beautifully under Ted Sperling and the, the chorus sang gorgeously. And uh, Sammy Canold, by the way, C-A-N-N-O-L-D was the director. Uh, 
so again, it was a one-nighter. So if you missed it, you missed it. Uh, you might be able to find some clips online. But I hope um, I hope we we hear the Sheldon Harnick translation again in future because it it really does make the piece so much more accessible. Uh, so we've interviewed Tammy a, a few times here on Broadway Radio. Yeah, uh, and uh, she also. Ironically, uh, worked on Dragon Lady at ART with Diane Paulus. Oh, wow. It's a small world. <laughs> uh, she was also one of the, uh, uh, she was the person that was putting together the spice of, sp- site specific, I didn't want to say spite specific, <laughs> site specific uh, violet on a bus. So, no. um, so I have to see if Sammy ever did the Violet on a Bus. I, I don't really remember if she did or not. So, well, she seems like a very creative director uh, based on this and other things of hers that I've seen. And th- this was really um, a very gripping performance. The relationship between Carmen and Don Jose. I mean, basically, it's, uh, you know, this this seductress who seduces a, a mama's boy uh and then he he really basically destroys his life uh he leaves his girlfriend he he quits he runs away he goes awol from the military and uh, all because he's so obsessed with her and then uh you know she moves on to the next guy and he kills her it's it's uh, it's a timeless really really gripping story and the the i think that sammy probably worked very closely with the performers to get the relationship uh between those two characters um to make it as as powerful as possible and she absolutely did that uh rob johnson in our chat room reminds us that sammy also did ragtime at ellis island she yes. was the, uh, another great she, show. Yeah, she was the uh, motivating force behind that. So, and uh, was it Evita at uh, Encores? Yeah, she did Evita at Encores. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Sammy is, uh, you know, uh, many many years ago we talked to her and we were like, this is somebody to watch, and mm-hmm. she continues to uh, shine and really do amazing work. So, um, a few weeks back, I saw Melissa Etheridge off-Broadway in her show, My Window, A Journey Through Life. Um, the show played, it, played its last performance yesterday, but I haven't been on in a few weeks, and I wanted to um, talk about this because I feel as though that this was, they were dipping their toe in the, uh, in the water, in the Broadway waters. Uh, I didn't realize that... Melissa had another Broadway credit. Do you know what her Broadway credit is? What? She played John Adams in an earlier production of 1776. <laughs> oh, you saw that. I okay. did. She was amazing. Okay. Excellent. She was uh, just Love like John that. Adams, just like John Adams uh, was. She was an American idiot. Uh, so uh, she was in American Idiot on Broadway. That's right. Uh, in February of 2011. Yeah, oh so, so was, did I. That was almost 12 years ago? <laughs> almost. <laughs> no. No. Mm. Yes, it's yes. not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not allowed. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so... Time uh, does so, split. It does. So uh, this is a one-woman show with... Uh, she had uh, somebody that... Uh, was playing the role of a stagehand that came on stage and and uh, 
was not actually a stagehand, but was somebody who was a everyman uh, character that uh, played with Melissa. And as I said, I think they were dipping their toe in the water to kind of publicly workshop this thing. It only played for three weeks, uh, as they said in their press releases, that this show will play only 12 performances to an audience of less than 500 per night at the intimate venue of New World Stages. Um, so certainly they weren't doing this to make money. They were doing this to figure out how this plays. I think that they need uh, a director or a stronger director or something to happen there because they do have a really good show. Melissa Etheridge is so... She's got that thing that you can't really describe, kind of like Alan Cumming. You know, it's like when Alan Cumming gets on stage, you like, all you can do is watch Alan Cumming. Well, it's the same thing with Melissa Etheridge. When she gets on stage, all you can do is watch Melissa Etheridge. She's so charming and so interesting, but they need to shape this show a little bit better if it is going to be a Broadway production or some sort of thing that she tours uh, throughout America as a theatrical production. Certainly she doesn't need our help or blessing to, to tour in a music venue. Uh, she's done that for many, many years as she describes through the, uh, through the program um, from her, her start up in Boston uh, all the way through today. It, it was a really wonderful show. Uh, some really interesting music and uh, hopefully we will see it again. So, uh, to finish up this morning, Michael, you were going to, uh, you finished up Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoir of Mary Rogers by Mary Rogers and Jesse Green of the New York Times. Well, I don't think we've mentioned Jesse yet, uh, so far, and, uh, I got scolded for that. So I did want to mention that Jesse Green did write it with Mary Rogers. So you finished it up and tell us what you thought. Yeah, and the only reason it took me so long to uh, finish it was because I had lots of distractions uh, in <laughs> in my life recently. But uh, because it's a very, very readable, incredibly entertaining book, uh, so uh, if one is not distracted, one can uh, get through it quite quickly. I think it's a really one one of the best memoirs I've ever read, and uh, it really benefits greatly from the format that they chose which is that the book is um, the book itself is is written almost entirely and then maybe edited a little bit by Jesse but then he um, adds footnotes throughout and the footnotes are also very very informative and entertaining um, but the th- the specific thing I wanted to mention is that uh, you know famously um, quite some years ago, uh, Jesse had asked Mary Ro- Mary Rogers uh, in an interview uh, had co- had called her up to ask him to ask her about uh, to comment on Arthur Lawrence, uh, who was famously very um, very prickly and and seemed to uh, alienate a lot of people that he worked with in his life and and Mary's comment at the time was call me back when he's dead. Uh, and so then this got a lot of notice, as one might, might imagine. Uh, uh, so people were waiting for this book to see uh, if uh, how valuable Mary would be on exactly why she had such incredibly negative feelings about Arthur Lawrence. Um, and 
she doesn't really go into it a lot, but there are two things that even though she doesn't give all the details, um, I think one could understand why these two things alone would have made her feel that way. And the first thing, which I really had no idea about, was that apparently Arthur Lawrence was originally mentioned to write the book for The Light in the Piazza mm-hmm. with Mary's son, Adam Gettle. And apparently, I don't know how far it got with him in the mix, but then for whatever reason, it was decided that that was not going to happen. And Arthur left the project. But according to Mary, uh, his behavior after he left the project was so hateful that I I think that that is a major reason why she, um, you know, decided that uh, that he was not going to be. Uh, in her life anymore at towards in the less part of her life. Uh, but also there's something else. There's another bit in the book where she gets a little more specific. She's uh, writing about uh, anyone can whistle uh, going back to the creation of that show, which uh, of course had music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by Arthur Lawrence. And she says here, um, After a private run-through of Anyone Can Whistle before it went to Philadelphia in 1964, Steve asked what I thought, and I told him honestly that it made no sense. He listened intently and asked me to share my thinking with Arthur. Uh Uh-oh. I still have the letter Arthur wrote in response. Quote, I hate you. The entire cast hates you. Don't come to Philadelphia. Quote, unquote, which was not much of a curse, by the way, unquote. So um, I think that those two little things um, maybe give us, a, a, you know, an idea of why <laughs> uh, it, ultimately when all was said and done, uh, Mary Rogers had such extremely negative feelings about Arthur Lawrence. All right. So. <laughs> wow. Oh, by the way, uh, one thing we didn't put on the agenda, but I just wanted to mention quickly is um, this Tuesday, uh, November 1st, is the dedication of the new Lena Horn Theater. Mm. And apparently it's going to involve uh, uh, some kind of block party and, and performances and events uh, to which, you know, uh, the public is invited. I, I have not been able to find the details as to exactly when it all is all starting and exactly what it's going to entail. But if you um, just kind of look online this week and Google, maybe you can uh, find out a little bit more about that because I'm sure some of our listeners will want to attend what really basically is a historic event, the um, the renaming of the Brooks Atkins Theater for Lena Horn. All right. I'll try to dig something up and throw that in the show notes as well. Great. So that uh, people can see that. Uh, last time Broadway had a block party was Angela Weber spinning discs in front of the, <laughs> in front of the Majestic. Uh, I'm not sh- quite sure that that'll be the same sort of thing that'll happen there. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information 
for Michael, for Jenna, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So if you are one of our Patreon members listening live and you want to get the trivia ahead of time, just uh, drop me an email and I will reply to the email with the trivia so you can get right to that. So, Peter, Mm -hmm. do you have an answer for last week's trivia? When Faye Dunaway agreed to join the 1964 Repertory Theater of Lincoln Center revival of The Changeling, she was in fact agreeing with one of the performers in a certain impresario's Follies. Explain. Hattie Walker, once of Dimitri Weissman's Follies, sings in Broadway Baby that hell, I'd even play the maid to be in a show. <laughs> maid was precisely the role that Dunaway played in The Changeling. Tony Janicki catapulted from his putrid seventh place finish <laughs> from the week before to re- regain his first place crown, followed by the ever-reliable Paul Witte, Juliet Green, Isaac Blevins, Brigadude, and Jack Leshner. This week's question, when a film is made from a Broadway property, there's a concerted effort to open it up, taking it to places that hadn't shown up on stage. However, one big mid-60s Broadway hit that ran more than two years took place entirely outdoors. And yet, when the time came to film it, it didn't open it up, but brought it indoors quite often. What's the film? What's the stage play? Same name. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Peter, have a great time, and we will see you next week. Indeed. Until then. Bye. So Peter asked me to do one addendum to the trivia, Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the answers that came in after Peter and I had recorded was that Robert Lobiondo did get the answer right. So he is on the list of winners from last week as well. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, our opener was the prelude or overture from... Uh, Carmen Jones, as recorded for the original Broadway cast album in 1944. Uh, And I think that's pretty rousing music to start with. Um, But our closer is uh, is a tribute to Jay Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, who who just died. And this um, has created one of the greatest outpourings of love and and sympathy that I've, I've read in a really long time. He was obviously not a household name, but really well known to um, to some of us and and beloved by many of us for his work in cabaret uh, over the decades, and also um, specifically for two really fantastic musical theater pieces, um, Whoop de Doo. And when pigs fly, these two uh, shows that played off Broadway, uh, mostly with uh, with I guess he would say they were their reviews um, with very gay sensibility and subject matter, but incredibly creative and uh, and known uh, uh, largely for the in- unbelievable, incredible costumes um, by Howard Crabtree, the really fanciful creations that he made for both of those shows. But they also were were really well written uh, in terms of the skits and the music and the lyrics. Uh, um, 
largely by Dick Gallagher and Mark Waldrop. Uh, and uh, Jay, uh, in, in When Pigs Fly, he had these torch songs that he sang that were beyond hilarious. Um, uh, t- very ironic uh, and sarcastic torch songs uh, to people like Newt Gingrich, um, Strom Thurmond, and Rush Limbaugh. Um, so uh, I think that th- those are all available on on YouTube uh, as audio if you want to hear those uh, with the gr- great lyrics by Mark Waldrop and, and music by Dick Gallagher and 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 hilarious performances by Jay. Um, but he could also be very uh, moving and touching. Uh, when he had the opportunity to do that. And another song from When Pigs Fly is Laughing Matters, um, which uh, has since been covered by several people, including Bette Midler recorded it for one of her albums. It's a really, really lovely, um, touching song about how uh, even, well, especially when, when things are, are so, so bad in the world, uh, and in our lives, um, it's it's very important to retain your sense of humor if you can, uh, and that's what it's about. Uh, so, so our closer is Jay's performance of Laughing Matters from When Pigs Fly, and um, really goodbye to him. He's he's his loss is a great one, and I I I just I can't again. I I I'm really touched by the outpouring of love that I've seen all over social media and, and all over the internet about him. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Jenna Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. With no Bye. answers, hang on like some nagging cough and every day some brand new issue rears its head to piss you off bad guys win optimism's wearing thin things are spinning out of control cynicism's all the fad and world events couldn't make us mad as hatters almost Every day, some underpinning slips away. These aren't laughing matters. Time bombs tick. People keep on getting sick. And a nickel's not worth a cent. Wickedness and greed abound Just as peace is gaining ground It shatters Hate is here to stay And justice goes to those who pay These aren't laughing matters The truth is scarier by far than anything that Stephen King could write. The stories in the paper are a daily small decline and fall spelled out in black and white. What to do? 
how to take a brighter view when your noodles totally fried human spirits need to be leavened by some levity so take those blues and bounce them off the wall keep your humor please cause don't you know it's times like these that laughing matters most of all